Well, uh, as Karen, Alyssa, Alex was uh, bringing up, we're going to start up a new uh, Read Through the Bible in 90 Days. And it's an easy thing to do. You can actually read through it on a Bible. You can read through it on an app on your phone. Uh, there's also a ton of different programs that uh, will read it out loud to you. And uh, if you'd like to have the fun of sort of going along with where everyone else is at, there's this app that you can get. I think it's called Version, or you can ask for more information. And this week, it may take some time for you to figure it out, but that's a really fun thing to figure out. But this next week, we're going to read through basically uh, the first two books of the Bible, Genesis and Exodus. And I've picked uh, each week, I'm going to preach from a section that we're reading. And uh, this week, I'm going to. I'm starting with this section at the end of Exodus, and it's been sort of traditionally thought of as not really the culmination of the story or the narrative, but um, as a point where Moses and God are talking through, and Moses is trying to understand something that has been made clear through the first couple books that, that Moses ha, has written these books, he's pulled all these stories together. Uh, prior to Moses, they had just been passed, as far as we can tell, passed back and forth orally, uh, you know, either told at like a fire or, or parents told their kids, but it was it had been passed down in an oral tradition uh, until it came to the point that God told Moses, I want you to start keeping a written log. And God actually changed this process by writing down with his own hand the law, and that's this moment right now that we're talking about when it shifts to something that's written. And so Moses is, at that moment, taking into account everything that's transpired up to this point. And so the reason why this passage will be a great one to talk about right now, and then go through Genesis and through Exodus, is that this will the things that Moses is wrestling with with God are the things that you would wrestle with as you read through this. In order to understand what's going on in these stories, there's going to be these themes that, that lead into this discussion that Moses is having with, uh, with God. And, and so it'll help us as we read through it to not just see sort of disconnected stories. And I remember the first time I read through the Bible, I would read like two, three, four pages, and then I wouldn't remember anything that was read. And I'd have to like go back over and start over again. And it just kept happening until finally I just realized, well, I'm just going to have to just start reading through and just whatever I can, you know, comprehend, I can comprehend. But, but there is that aspect when you first, but as you start catching on to the stories and you start seeing these different details and you start feeling within yourself this yearning to understand something that you can tell something's being said, but it's like Paul says, kind of looking in a mirror dimly. It, it, it helps as we start understanding the wrestling or the struggle or, or what the, the point of the conversation in these people's lives is, because it's one story of coming to one point that's mixed together. And so uh, let me just start 
by running through and to, to where we are right now, you know, obviously the Bible starts with the creation story. And in that, the sort of culmination of that narrative or that story is when Adam and Eve choose to eat from what's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, they've had a relationship with God. They've had a relationship with other people where the knowledge of good and evil was absent. They had great relationship with God, great relationship with each other, and it had nothing whatsoever to do with them having any idea about anything that's right or wrong. <laughs> it was a time of rest that they were living in where God had worked to create the world, and then they entered and he was to his rest, and they existed in that rest, and that rest had nothing to do with the knowledge of good and evil it was just based on the grace of God. And what they did was they chose to say, no, we want this relationship with God. We, we feel like God has relationships based on knowledge of good and evil. And, and we would like to have that too. In other words, they thought that it would, they would grow closer, that they would become more like God, that they, it would be better, more powerful, however you just want to say, if they had this knowledge of good and evil. But the result of that good and evil and going down that path of saying we're going to relate to God, relate to others based on good and evil, the result of that we see in the next story of Cain and Abel, where Cain, it's the and Abel are the two sons of Adam and Eve, and Cain kills Abel. And what's interesting with that story when you read through it is that after Cain kills his brother, uh, God still talks with him. God still is meeting with him. Uh, Cain still has requests that he puts before God, and God hears those requests, and God responds to them. One of the requests that, that Cain said is, hey, look, if I'm you know, now pushed out into everyone else, everyone's going to hear that I've killed my brother, and, and they're going to kill me. And that's one of the weird byproducts of this quest to see everything, this path to, to form relationships and to be a person that's guided by the knowledge of good and evil. It, it, there's this weird byproduct that you see starting at the beginning where you always see the threat as being from someone else. When the only person that's killed anybody at this point that we know of is Cain. But Cain's so worried that everyone else is going to kill him, he, he doesn't even stop to consider the only murderer here is himself. And so there's this weird thing where we start to see the threat from being on the outside and start to ignore the fact that the real threat is actually coming from within us. And you see that theme carried on through, and it leads on through. Abraham, God pulls out Abraham, and he says, look, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He gives, starts to give these promises through these stories in Genesis of a savior that's going to be born, of an actual person. He says there's going to be a person born of your lineage that will save us from this problem that's been going on. And God used Abraham to be a blessing to those around him. And he says that this isn't just going to be a blessing for your circle, however it is that you've decided to form your group, whether it's just your family or your extended family or you in a regional area or us as a country or, or however it is that you want to create this circle, 
what he's saying is, is that the blessing that he gives, we're going to initially think it's just for this, but it's not. It's for something bigger. It's something that everyone, it, so whatever it is that's the blessing that we're looking for, that's going to get us back to this place to rest, it isn't something that's going to help one group as opposed to the other. It's going to be something that's going to be helpful and a blessing to everybody. And one of the things that you see as we go through Genesis is Abraham has two sons, Isaac and Esau. And uh, the bless, or excuse me, Isaac and Ishmael. He, God makes it clear that even though Ishmael was born first, there's a promise that's there. In other words, that God is going to give this salvation, this person is going to come according to a promise, not according to what it is that we see as coming from our flesh and blood, you might say. And that's confirmed in the next story of uh, Jacob and Esau. And uh, uh, Jacob, uh, Esau was the firstborn. He should have been the heir, uh, according to the tradition uh, at that time. But God chose instead to have it be Jacob. And, and so what you see is there's this continued thing that who we are it's like in that story, uh, later on, we'll get to the Gospels. And, and Jesus, they say, oh, your mother and your brothers, they're trying to get a hold of you. And, and Jesus stops them and just says, you know, my mother and brother, behold, this is my mother and my brother. And he points to the people around him. Uh, in other words, we try to think of things in terms of this circle, or here's this group that that we're flesh and blood, but he says what it is that we're trying to get from that flesh and blood circle or from forming this tight-knit group of friends or forming this tight-knit church or this tight-knit family or, or what we're trying to do by securing things as a country, borders or whatever, whatever it is that we're wanting to do by securing things and locking things down like that, that's not where our rest is going to be found. It's actually going to be found by, by what God chooses to bring in. And that's what you see with, uh, you know, uh, Jacob. He's renamed Israel. He has uh, 11 sons at the time. Ten of them decide that they're going to betray their brother. And they think they have good reasons for it. That's the thing about this knowledge of good and evil. And when we start evaluating things by that, we start doing things based on we feel like we're justified because we're on the side of what's right. And what they did at that moment was they sold their brother into slavery, into Egypt. And we talked about this before, that Joseph, when he confronts them with it, says, you know, you meant this for evil, but God meant it. For good. In other words, we've got this tight-knit group, this family unit, but the trouble doesn't come from the outside. The trouble comes from within. And we keep thinking that the trouble is from the outside. We like to paint the picture as the trouble coming from the outside, but the trouble is actually he was betrayed by his own brothers. But even though that was the case, God was gracious, and God brought Joseph into Egypt and 
brought his whole family into Egypt and brought this promise into Egypt. And Egypt was a tight-knit group, and God brought people into Egypt, and that was a huge blessing for Egypt. Because God brought people in to Egypt, Egypt was able to see what God was doing and be able to start saving up. Joseph was in charge of, he was going to have this huge famine for seven years. And because of Joseph coming in, because of the family coming in, God gave wisdom to Egypt to be able to save up during those seven years all of their produce and their their grain and different things so that when the famine came, they would have food. Again, not just for them as a country, but it was a blessing for the entire world. All the world came in and brought in riches into Egypt. Egypt became a great country, all because of the people that God had brought in and the blessing that he had brought in to choose to do in Egypt a a saving that wasn't just for Egypt, but was for everyone. But again, Egypt fell into the same trap that we talked about with Esau, where it was a blessing, people coming in, but Egypt started to see them as a threat. And Egypt came to fear what was a blessing and what, because they had come in, had made Egypt into a great country that they became to fear those people. And that is a common factor that happens throughout all of history. Nations always do that. God brings people in and it's a blessing. But for whatever reason, All we can see is, no, we're being a blessing to them. They're being a drag on us. We start to see the people that God has brought in as a blessing. We start to see them as a threat, and things start to unravel. And it happens in countries. It happens in families. It happens personally. We're just constantly, and it's this effect that's pushed forward by us trying to go down the path or go down the way of life that, that where we think that our path, our way will be illuminated, that our path, our way is going to become greater if we start evaluating what's right and what's wrong and start trying to enforce what we feel is right, what we feel is wrong. But what always ends up happening is, is in God's grace, he brings people into that with a blessing. And as we persist in our obstinance of not seeing the path of God's grace, when we just persist in going down this path labeled as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it always ends up pushing out God's blessing. And what happened with Egypt is they just went into a huge persecution of Israel. But Israel, in God's graciousness, became a great nation anyway. And when God brought Israel out of Egypt. One of the little tidbits that you'll see as you read through that story is that God basically, some people talk about it as looting Egypt, but but what it was was when he came out, he didn't just bring, he he brought them in as a blessing. And when Egypt pushed them and tried to move them to extinction by by killing them off, just basically trying to divorce themselves from them, that when God brought them out, he brought out with them all the blessing that he had given them. In other words, their entire army that had been built by 
the work that Egypt was doing, or the work that Israel was doing within Egypt, that whole army was destroyed as God parted the Red Sea and put it back together. And also there's this odd thing that comes up at the beginning of this chapter in Exodus where all of the gold and jewels and ornamental jewelry was given over to the Israelites. And then where this story picks up here, and it's in Exodus 32, is that this odd thing happens. God brings them out of, his, out of Egypt, parts the Red Sea. He's there for them in a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. Uh, people attack. He, he defends them, wins the victory for them. They, they're hungry, water uh, you know, food falls from heaven, bread, that they, they want meat, meat falls from heaven, these birds, and, and then water, they need what water comes from the, God's visible care for them has been there just constantly in a very uh, miraculous way. And they get to this place and, and Moses has been meeting with God and it, we get a glimpse of it here in this passage, though. When Moses meets with God, he meets with him face to face as a man meets with a friend. And he's been meeting outside the camp of Israel. But God brings Moses up, and God gives Moses the law. And the law is probably the greatest representation of the culmination of what this path would look like that's paved by the knowledge of good and evil, goes into great detail about what's good and what's evil. And, but but the, one of the biggest parts of the law, the, the largest chunk, I think, is really about this interesting thing that God does where he's telling them to build this tabernacle. And it talks about how the tabernacle works and how they can build it. And we'll Talk about that next week because in the following week we'll be going through the law and uh, a lot about the tabernacle. But the point of the tabernacle was it was God's promise saying, I'm not going to be on the outsides of the camp. I'm going to, I want you to build this tabernacle. And my promise is that my presence will dwell with you in the midst of you. That this salvation that I'm bringing isn't going to be for me on the outside, but I'm actually going to come to the inside. And that salvation is going to start from me being with you in the most intimate way. And it's a picture of Jesus. But what happens before God can even get that out to them, before Moses can even come down, God says, you need to go down there and see what's happening. And Moses goes down. And what has happened is they've taken all the ornaments that had been given to them on the blessing of them being freed from captivity, all the blessings that God had given them to take with them, they took those ornaments and they had handed it to Aaron and he had melted it down and formed this golden calf. And now they were worshiping this calf saying, behold, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. In other words, the things that we now have that we know were a blessing from God we're going to ignore God and we're going to reinterpret it in terms of here's the things that we've made with the things that we have and the things that we've made with the things that we have. That's what's actually 
rescued us. That's what's saved us. And that's a constant thread that we always do, that we take the wonderful things that are given to us as a gift from God, and we reinterpret it in our minds at that moment, according to this knowledge of good and evil, that we feel like the things that we have, that we've made, that this is what's brought us to this place. And God says in this chapter, then, 33, where we pick it up at the beginning of the chapter, God tells Moses, look, I've already told you before, you know, he had told them several chapters earlier, maybe 10 chapters, I think it's like maybe Exodus 23, that, I'm, that he was going to send an angel into the land with them to protect them from all the people that were there that were going to try and kill them, to, to give them protection from everyone else. And there had been this promise of an angel of the Lord to go with them. And God says to Moses, look, I'm still going to do that. I'm going to send this angel of the Lord before you. But my presence is not going to go with you. Because if my presence was to go with you, you guys are just so obstinate, so refusing to change, and so bent on evil that, that just my presence, if it got too close to you, it, it would just annihilate everyone. In other words, in order for the goodness of God to be here, the goodness of God removes evil, and we feel that removal of evil insofar as it removes other people that are threats or other things that are threats, but we're still left with the problem that if we're in a circle by ourselves, we're the problem. We're the evil. And if God was to come in in his goodness to protect us, he would have to protect us from ourselves with removing everybody. And God in his grace has said, I'm creating some distance between me and you while you figure this out. While you are refusing to change course and go down this path of grace, you're just refusing to see that there needs to be a change. And when he starts that discussion with Moses, um, Moses starts to grapple with that, and he sees some problems. What God has effectively said is, look, you really, you've made it clear by, by you know, taking everything that I give you and molding it up to be able to say, no, you know, I'm the one who did this. I gave you your education. I gave you your family. I gave you your parents. I gave you any money that you might have. I gave you whatever opportunity you have. And yet you've gone back through and said, no, by my discipline, I've accomplished this. I've graduated with this. I've gotten this job. I've tried so hard. I deserve this. This is what's just is what I have because I've built it by my own hands. You're so persistent, he says. And, and, and and so obstinate in seeing everything in that with that lens and that way, and so much refusing to see it any other way. Fine, then I'll just continue to give you what you want. And if you don't want me to be a part of it, fine. I, I love you. I care about you. And, and I'm just going to continue. And, and what that is, is it's seen in our everyday life as the what usually drives us to God is we see, oh, this is happening or that is happening. I need help with this. I need help with that. And, and this, you know, I'm worried about this person or that person and, and, and these, these 
needs that are, and those are real. He's not diminishing those. He's saying, oh, I see that. I'm going to give you help with that. But every prayer request that we have in that fashion doesn't address the problem. Because as soon as he takes care of it, we still haven't found any rest. Because the problem isn't all these other problems. We're just sort of ignoring that there's some problem that's coming from us. We see that we need a savior from everybody else. We just don't really catch on that, that we need a savior from ourselves. We would be just as much likely to be killed by everyone else as we would in a room by ourselves at our own hands. But we don't see that. Moses starts to talk through, and here's the first thing. Moses says, he says, listen, you've been telling me, lead these people, but you've not yet let me know whom you will send with me. Now, who's he talking about there? There's no record of, of anyone being sent with him. You could say it's a reference to Joshua, but it's not a reference to Joshua because Joshua didn't go with Moses into the land. He went by himself. But Moses at this point is feeling as though God has promised, and the only promise that God has given fits with this line that's been talked about over and over again through the story that Moses carries this thought of this angel of the Lord. Now, the, the angel of the Lord, many people have noted that there's zero reason to think that this is a reference to something other than God that because of the word angel, because it doesn't work like that in their language at their time, that, that it's probably best to see this word, the angel of the Lord, as simply the action or the external, what, what we uh, uh, perceive externally of what it is that God's done. In other words, the part of God that we can perceive type thing. And it's okay to think of that as the action of God or in that sense, because that is. But it's important to understand here that Moses sees that as a promise of an actual person coming with him. What's happened here? Moses sees, look, you've given us this law, and that hasn't resulted in anything other than just further isolation. It hasn't resulted in us changing path. It hasn't resulted in anything good. It is all it's resulted is, is just in further condemning ourselves. But I can see that you're forgiving us. And you have this promise that even though we don't deserve it, you're going to take care of us from all these other threats. And you've promised that this angel is going to come, but you're saying, look, if you want a salvation that doesn't have anything to do with me, you just want these things. You just want to treat me like an ATM machine. That's okay. I, I, I still love you, and I'll, I'll help you in whatever way you're willing to. But what God was doing is he's not saying that wasn't God's intent to go that way. It's just God saying, I'm not going to force you to change paths. If you're just going to remain obstinate to go down this path that, like, I'm the one who's going to do it, he says, go ahead, you can do that. I'm not going to leave you 
I'm still going to be with you. I'm still going to take care of you. But if you want that to be, there'll just be this separation. There'll just have to be this separation between me and you because there's this problem. But what happens with Moses is on behalf of his people, one person, one small part decides to ask, well, what's this other path look like? You know, that obstinance breaks in one small part that asks, you haven't told me anything about this Savior that you're going to bring. Well, what is this plan that you have for us? If it's not us being good and us being right and us getting what we deserve, and, and if it's not by our works, what, what else is that? Tell, tell me more about that. And it's this openness. There, there's this obstinance to go down this course. And, and there's just one small part of Israel as a nation or as a person. There's one small part of us usually. Our whole life, everything around us, the whole world, every way we talk about everything is geared under this thing of we need to earn, we need to do. We need, everything depends on our actions, depends on us being right. But we see God's graciousness acting according to a different path. But we're so obstinate on this. But every person, there's a small part of us, and it's just this little sprout of faith that starts to pop up. And in this sense, in terms of all of Israel, it's just Moses. And that small part asks, well, you haven't really told me. Tell me some more about what this person Will look like what this savior that you promised to Abraham will look like. What will be? And then Moses says, in terms of that person, he says, You have been telling me, lead this people, but you have not let me know by whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, here's what Moses says, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation it is your people. In other words, God had chosen to attach himself to be in the life of this people prior to them even doing anything. And that's the way it is with us personally. God is with us prior to us making any decisions on anything. But what he says is, I need to know more about this way. Well, God had already given him the law. He's not talking about the law because God had already spelled everything out in the law. And the law hadn't resulted in anything. In fact, Moses had broken the law by seeing the people. What he says is, no, tell me some more about this person, this Savior. Tell me some more about this other way. And God says, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. What God is saying is, look, if you want to choose this path and just obstinately push down and say that anything good that comes into my life has been a result of me, doing it, or has been a result of me figuring out the right thing, uh, of me having the discipline of this. If you just want to be, I'm not going to cut you off. I'm just going to continue blessing you. 
and you just continue to reinterpret that as your own thing, that's fine. Just do that. I love you so much. I, I, I'm not going to just abandon you. But you'll have a life that's distant from me, and you won't have the rest that you're looking for. There'll be an unrest in our life, and it's not from God, but it's because what we're doing when we're going down this path is we're protecting ourselves from all these external forces, but we don't realize that that we think rest will come when we have enough money to weather this, when we have homes that can weather this, when we buy our homes so we're not subject to rental markets, when we have our own business or when we've stocked up enough, then we'll have, but we don't realize that as we create these circles, the threat isn't coming from the outside. All we've done is locked ourselves in the room with the most deadly person we could lock ourselves in the room with, which is ourselves. It's not God's fault that we don't have rest. It's not that he's holding. It's that we won't receive the rest because we refuse to deal with the problem that we're the ones who are causing the unrest in our lives. And that's not to say there isn't other things happening. We, we cause all sorts of grief to all sorts of other people, but it's emanating from us just as much as anyone else. And, and so Moses is saying, how is it? What about this person? And how is it that we can have this and have you in our life, given that we're just so messed up? He says, if your present does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go up with us? What else will distinguish me from your people, from all the other people on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. What Moses is saying is, look, they've experienced forgiveness already. God said, I'm for forgiving you. He's not annihilating them when they did this, created this golden calf, and started worshiping it. He says, I'm still going to bring you into the land. I'm still going to give you everything. All that is being done on the basis of forgiveness. And so we know how is it that we can find rest? You can't find rest by protection. You have to find rest by forgiveness. And we all understand that. Everybody knows, but we don't understand the extent of that. When Jesus talks about forgiveness, his disciples say, well, how many times do I need to forgive? We, we keep thinking that the solution will be some sort of measured forgiveness, or we keep thinking that, that forgiveness will be a chance for us to restart and for us to now turn and now get things right. But what Moses says is, look, if you're forgiving us, but then for this very reason you're not going to go with us, then that forgiveness loses its distinction. In other words, forgiveness isn't forgiveness unless it's lasting and enduring. Forgiveness for a moment. If you forgive someone for five minutes and then spend the rest of your life, you know, angry at them, that's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is only forgiveness. It only has definition insofar as it's willing to last forever. In other words, how many times should I forgive my brother? How many times 
means forgiveness isn't forgiveness anymore when you add that condition to it. Conditional forgiveness is not forgiveness. It needs to be something that's lasting. And what is it that's going to make it lasting? Here's where he ends. Then when Moses hears this, he says, okay, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, look, I'll cause my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. What we can handle is we can see God's goodness passing before. We can't necessarily grab a hold, but we can see it passing, his goodness that's passing in front of us. And he says what that goodness is based on. He says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see my face and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock And when my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. He's saying right now you're living in that promise that I will solve this problem. There's a little story that you'll read through. I'll just share this one in closing. It's a story of Abraham where he is about to sacrifice his son to God. And as he's bringing his son, his son says, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will provide. And as Abraham is lifting his arm to slay his son, you know who prevents him? It says the angel of the Lord prevents him. And Moses sees a lamb and offers the lamb in its place. But what God is getting at here is saying, look, we all want rest, and we know that rest is involves God's goodness coming to us, that protection, and we know that it involves God forgiving us. But there's a problem that's inside of us. There's this obstinance that's there. There's this drive within us to want to define everything as something that we've earned, that that we've done. There's this drive for us to take the glory of everything good that God gives us. And we're not able to have peace with each other. We're not even able to have peace with ourselves. But the key to that we can tell is forgiveness. But but how can that forgiveness be enduring? How can that last when we just keep doing more and more? Something has to change. And what God's saying is, is, no, the salvation that I'm doing is I'm going to come in from the outside. I'm going to come in to your midst. And all I'm asking for is just for one small part of you to just be open. I know you're obstinate. I know you're just going to continue pressing forward. I know your whole body, your whole life, everything is pushing you. But all I'm asking for is just one small part of you to just pull back a little bit and just to ask me a little bit about this other way. And this other way is about 
forgiveness. And, and this other way presents this problem where how can this last when I just keep messing up? And what God's saying is it can last even though you're messing things up if someone is paying the price for that, if it's being paid for. If we want to know in life where we're going to find rest, it needs to take into account not just the threats of everyone else, but what's going on inside of us. It needs to take into account the problems that we create for ourselves. It needs to take into account forgiveness. It needs to take into account how can that forgiveness be predominant? How can that forgiveness reign above everything else? How can that forgiveness never come to the place where it needs to be sealed off? It can only, it can't come to that on our account because we're so stubborn and obstinate, we're never going to pay. We don't even see that we've wronged anyone. No one thinks that like anyone needs to die in order to save them. We see everything else that we blame on other people. We're not going to take care of this. We're not going to pay the price that is required for forgiveness to be enduring. The only hope that we have and the only story and the only offer of this is found in Jesus. And as we read through the Bible, I know that you may feel like, well, a good place to start if you've never read through it is in the Gospels because it's just clearly about Jesus. But Genesis is good too. There's plenty of indications of Jesus. And it's like Moses says, I don't know that much. There's things about it that point. And so open your mind. Don't just read through Genesis and Exodus and through the Bible obstinately, just pressing down this path of works, pressing down, here's these principles that I will live my life by. That's just going to lead to condemnation for you and everyone else and push you into this thing where you're just pushing away all the blessings of God. Instead, go with that little part of you that sees the goodness of God and is honest and knows that God's blessing me through forgiveness. He's forgiving me. And start pressing God and asking God, show me, if Jesus is here, show me Jesus. And show me what this other path is like. If it's, if it's not me figuring out what's right and what's wrong, or you telling me what's right and what's wrong, and then me doing it, or if it's not me earning it, then open my eyes. Let me see Jesus in here. Let me see this other way, this other path. And I'm just telling you from experience, if you ask, God will give it. That's what the story of Moses is. Finally, someone in Israel, a small part, started asking. And God started opening up the salvation that he had for them. The rest that they wanted was found in the path that God had laid out, the name that God had made for himself, what God had chosen to identify himself, what God was going to do, how God was going to come in, how God was giving them goodness. It, it wasn't found down this other path that Adam and Eve went.
I'm going to pray now, and then Damon can close us up. But I want to give a chance for anyone that would like to, that's been feeling in their heart an openness to know about Jesus. If you see that need and you'd like to become a follower of Jesus on that basis and begin sort of a new life, a new life that's not based on being better than everyone else, but a new life that's based on, I'm going to start putting my hope down this other path of forgiveness. I'm going to start putting my hope down this other path that I don't even understand how that could work out. But if there's a hope that Jesus will take care of all my evil, for, if there's a hope that he will pay the price, I'd like to find something more about that. Uh, you can start that path right now by accepting Jesus as your Savior. And so as maybe everyone can bow your head and close your eyes. If you'd like to accept Jesus as your Savior, uh, you can pray with me. Uh, Jesus, we just ask for forgiveness for all of our obstinance. We ask for forgiveness for the way that we harm so many people, including ourselves. And we just ask that you would save us from that. And we ask that your forgiveness would be everlasting. We ask that you would pay the price for us. And Jesus, please give us a new life, a new life that can start right now. And Lord, we want to be your follower. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.